Welcome to the Working on Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Sarah Cunningham, and I am passionate about the science behind how we can all work on our well-being. That's how I came to lead the World Wellbeing Movement, a non-profit social impact organisation housed within the University of Oxford's Wellbeing Research Centre. In short, our mission is to improve the quality of people's life across the world by connecting well-being experts with those people who can have the biggest impact, so with business leaders and policymakers. And through my work, I get to meet the most incredible people. That's why we've created this podcast, so that you can be a fly on the wall during my conversations with the world's leading well-being experts. In today's episode, we'll hear actionable tips that business leaders and employees alike can employ when facing unexpected workplace challenges. And we'll discuss what we can all do to create a less stressful future of work. And I'm delighted to be joined today by the remarkable Dr. Jacqueline Brassi, or Jackie, as I believe you're known. Correct. (laughs) So Jackie is the co-author of two recently published books, which we have here, Deliberate Calm and Authentic Confidence. You are an adjunct professor at the IE University in Madrid, and you're also the co-leader of the McKinsey Health Institute, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Well, you are very welcome. I'm delighted to have you as a guest on this podcast. And Jackie and I have met each other a few times and we've we've really bonded. So I'm excited uh, for all of you to hear the incredible insights and research that, that Jackie has done. I feel a great place to start an interview is to ask, how are you? But there is a problem with that. And the problem with that is that all too often people give an auto-response. So they'll say, I'm fine, or I'm grand, or my favourite, confusing, positive, negative, not too bad, thanks. But I find that people never tell you the real answer. So because you are a research expert, I thought I'd ask you the way scientists would ask, the way, for instance, the Gallup World Poll or the World Happiness Report might ask. So I hope you don't mind me asking... But on a scale of 1 to 10, how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? Oh, that's a great question, Sarah. Um, Actually, uh, I'm pretty good. I think I would say an 8. An 8. Wow. So that's amazing. Just for context, the average response to that answer is 7. So that tells me that you're you're doing pretty well. and I would love for you to share some tips on, on how you've achieved such, such strong well-being as we chat throughout, this, throughout the course of this interview. But before we sort of jump into your research and your books, I wanted to ask you, because of course the work you do is very much focused on creating a, a healthier future of work where well-being really is at the core. So I'd love to know, what is the change that you want to see in the future of work? If you were to propel ourselves forward 10 or 20 years in a time machine, what's the change that you want to see? Oh, I love that question. And, uh, and I have a very clear vision about that. I, I really hope that organizations can be enablers for health and well-being because, um, you know, we spend a lot of our time at work 
And uh, there's a huge opportunity for us to grow and develop and have positive impact and meet people and so on. And, and it's just wonderful if we uh, become more fulfilled and, uh, and feel enriched by the work that we do every day. Um, and that it also creates a lot of meaning for us. So I really have that vision, organizations becoming enablers for well-being. Uh, rather than the other side of of the coin, eh? the, the reducing health and reducing well-being, because uh, there's a huge opportunity, um, and uh, and I think there's also a huge um, a huge gap still. So there is. That's and I my think, vision. I think that's a wonderful vision. Let's talk about how we can bring that vision to life. And now might be a good opportunity to um, talk about your book, Mm -hmm. Deliberate Calm. One of the things that I want to get out of this podcast series is that all of our listeners come away from every episode with one or two actionable tips that they can apply in their own lives and in their work. And what's fantastic about you is both of your books are packed full of actionable tips. Um, (laughs) But I thought I might start by reading a very short quote um, from Deliberate Cam. Um, And this is in the context of an employee maybe facing a challenging or a difficult situation. So you describe Deliberate Cam as, it's not a leadership style or behavior. Rather, it is a personal self-mastery practice that provides leaders with the awareness and skills to avoid reacting ineffectively and instead choose the mode of thinking and acting that is most effective based on their current circumstances. Now, that's all very well, but is it that simple? Can we really choose our mode of thinking? And if we can, how? Tell me a little bit more about deliberate calm and maybe give me an example of deliberate calm in action. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and this is really at the heart of, uh, of the book. So this is amazing. You picked out this quote. Um, to answer your first question, is it that simple? Um, yes, it is actually relatively simple, but it is not easy. So a couple of the principles in the book that we uh, that we talk about um, sound very simple, but then when you really need to bring them into practice, they can be extremely hard to do. And uh, and maybe you cannot choose the thoughts initially that you may have or your initial response, but you can choose actually to look at things a different way. So we talk a lot also about reframing. But at the core of deliberate calm, um, we, we talk about on the one side, what, the, what, what it, does it mean, deliberate, right? That is the choice. Um, if you become aware of a situation uh, that you're in that may actually require you to do something else or to, that requires that ask something else from you that you initially would want to, um, to show, then um, in that moment you can make a choice to change, to change how you look at it, to change your response. And at the same time, the second word, calm, is about managing the instant response that you may have. And, and we refer, of course, a lot of what we explain in the book applies to high-stakes situations where the stress is high. And the stress can be high in uh, situations that are familiar or unfamiliar. And 
nine out of ten, um, your initial reaction in high stakes familiar situations may be fine because actually you apply what you've learned before. You default to what you know. And that may serve the situation perfectly well. So it that's depends. sort of like when I'm on auto drive driving to work and I forget that I somehow got from home to work. And yeah. yeah, that's yeah, the auto drive. Yeah, you've learned it, right? You go yeah. uh, in, into a part of your brain where you have uh, a lot of uh, the stuff that you already know and you just pick it from the shelf there and that's how you apply. Then the other part um, that we talk about is, but if, if you go into a high stakes, unfamiliar uh, situation... That's a situation that requires you to learn and adapt and not apply what you normally, what you already know or what you have in your repertoire, but it requires you to change. And that is the hardest to do because in those situations you want to go to the default mode. So actually, if you have to synthesize this book, it's, it's about changing when change is hard. Okay. So, I mean, and this I find really interesting. Um, you talk about the adaptability paradox. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Well, that is actually um, uh, what, I, what I refer to when I said, you know, when you, when you need to change, when change is most needed or required, that's when it's hardest to do. So I, I can give you an example. Uh, we open the, we start the book with um, uh, a, a scene where Captain Sullenberger is taking off with a plane from uh, LaGuardia Airport. There's also a so, so this is the movie with Tom Hanks, There is right? a movie, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing. <laughs> it's a very good movie, actually. So um, takes off, um, and not very long after takeoff, the, the plane gets struck by, air, by uh, a bird flock. Uh, in that very moment, the engine uh, goes off and there's the, uh, of course, the protocols go uh, come into play. Then um, the, um, the traffic control tower uh, tells Captain Sullenberger, you need to go back to LaGuardia Airport. That's currently the protocol. And in that very moment, he takes the decision to not do that, to not listen, because he realizes, and though, I mean, there are milliseconds, but he realizes that's not going to work out. Doesn't have a lot of time to think about it, but takes the decision to land the plane on the Hudson River. Even, long story short, he lands safely. There are no casualties, nobody dies. But they looked at it afterwards. And, uh, and there was a, a huge challenge also for him. Why did he do that? And he put people in danger. And um, But at that very moment, the protocol that was uh, put into play um, was applicable to when one uh, engine uh, gets out. But actually, in that situation, two engines were out. He would never have been able to return to LaGuardia Airport. Wow. Now, that's a situation, I mean, you know, people may, may, may say, I don't identify with that because I'm not uh, Captain Sullenberger and so on. But, you know, that's a very clear, extreme situation, very high stakes, very unfamiliar. Uh, of deliberate calm in action. And we have many versions of those um, during the day, but also in the businesses that we work at currently, if you look at where we are, right? Yeah. After the pandemic and the accelerating change and the VUCA world and so on, we constantly need to learn and adapt. But it's very hard if we yeah. are in high-stakes situations. That's just how our brains work. I mean, I think that's an absolutely wonderful example. Um, and, and I did watch the film, but but I confess that Part of the reason why I was astonished with how Sully, as he was nicknamed, um, uh, reacted was because I don't trust that I would have such strong instincts in that moment. And 
I guess I'm going to give a, a sort of personal uh, anecdote here. So when I was in my early 20s, I suffered from quite debilitating panic attacks. Um, and when I found myself in the type of situations that you're describing, so high stakes, unfamiliar, the stress would lead to a physiological reaction within me and I would actually start hyperventilating. Now, I'm very lucky I got professional support and I've managed to overcome that. But although that's an extreme reaction to stress, I think many people react to stress, however that is. And I think it's very difficult in that moment to practice deliberate calm. So what would be your advice to somebody who's listening and going, yeah, what Sully did was amazing, Mm -hmm. but I struggle to just breathe. Tell me, tell me what to do. Yeah. Now, well, I want to also uh, make it very clear. I mean, if you have serious challenges and and, uh, and issues, I would say go and see a professional. Right? I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but we're talking for uh, a large part of uh, of the people who are listening, for which this can be uh, very helpful. Um, but of course, uh, that doesn't mean you you shouldn't take uh, get professional care. But, but what can you do? So this, this is actually, it starts with building awareness. Building awareness for, for your own, uh, we, call, uh, we, say, we talk about triggers sometimes, um, but, but what is getting you into a stressful situation? And what are they? And sometimes they are, you know, if you, if you, we have a protocol in the back of the book as well. If you follow yourself for a couple of weeks and you write down any moment that you feel stressed and you reflect on what's going on in my brain, in my mind, what am I thinking? How am I feeling physically? Because it's a whole body of situation. Everything uh, impacts uh, how you feel. Uh, and what is my behavior as a result? And if you start tracking that, at the end of the day, uh, you also look at the pattern during the day. And, and if you do that for a couple of weeks, you start actually become more aware of those moments that you feel stressed. And you can also start seeing a pattern. Um, and and that's, that's just step one. First is because a lot of this happens without us being aware. Yes, um, yes. And if we become more aware, well, then that's where you then can apply the other techniques that we talk about, because then you can actually, and that's when we talk about, um, you know, you can intervene. Awareness is one. Then you can create a pause. And in that pause, you can intervene. And that can mean a long pause where you really start, you say, okay, I need to take a time out. I'm going to reflect and I'm going to take notes. But you do not always have that, right? That luxury. Uh, and sometimes it means indeed applying breathing exercises on the spot yeah, or other exercises. It's such great advice. And, you know, one of the things that I want for listeners of this podcast is that everybody can take away that actionable tip. I kind of said that at the beginning. And I think pause before reacting is a great example of an actionable tip that we can all take away. It's it's something that I try to remember myself. And being, being quite honest, at one point, I actually had a post-it above my computer monitor saying pause, quite genuinely, uh, to remind <laughs> myself. <laughs> I, I'm a big believer in those little, little post-its to remind ourselves when we're in the moment. Um, but I was fascinated by something that you call the ripple effect of fear. Can you tell me a bit more about this and why people managers should be aware of it? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a very relevant uh, uh, topic. So the ripple effect of fear, or the domino effect that we talk about is basically if you feel under pressure and you actually are not able to em- uh, regulate your emotions, you put stress on others. So um, if... 
uh, if you're challenged because there is a, a particular uh, deadline or something you need to do before next week, but you're scared to speak up as a as a leader, and therefore, and also you're scared to show that actually this is a bit too high of a high bar, and you can't push back, and as a result, you're taking it all in, and then subsequently put the pressure on your own team, yeah. Yeah. and then the team is under pressure, and that you know, and it cascades down. Um, or you're having a bad day and uh, a little thing happens and you're shouting at somebody. I mean, all, Sarah, I'm, I'm the last one to say that I've never shouted, right? I, I'm doing that as well. And it's difficult not to sometimes. Um, but it, what is very important is, uh, of course, if it happens, then to make amends, right? To make sure you have a conversation. Um, but, but what is more important that you start becoming aware. Yeah. And in the moment that you can catch to be... I, sometimes I, I call it catch the arrow. Yeah. So that is that is deliberate common action. You see that you're actually going through this uh, challenge. You don't always need to do something about it. You can just park it and say, okay, the pause that you just talked about, sometimes that's the best thing to do. Yeah. But we feel we need to always immediately respond. Even if you have an opportunity, sleep on a couple of things a couple of nights, and then the answer sometimes comes. Um, and that is, uh, you know trying to stop the cascading effect of um, not only the pressure that you that is put on you, but sometimes it's not even the pressure that's put on you. It is you put something, the pressure on yourself because what, whatever you interpret as so, uh, something I need to do. So yeah, this constant work. This is so true. And it's really fantastic advice because the job of a people manager is a really difficult job. Um, yeah. And it, it really can be stressful. So I would recommend quite genuinely, your book has fantastic advice. So if you are a people manager, I highly recommend uh, the book Deliberate Cam. But I, I do think that most people managers come from a good place. They have positive intentions. And when they do maybe cascade stress or negative negativity throughout the organization, it's inadvertent. So it might be through not having that opportunity to, to read books like Deliberate Calm and, and to learn what they can do, to, mm -hmm. to learn how to pause. Um, but of course, that can lead to real issues. And I'm going to move away from the book and, and talk to you in your, in your role as the, the co-lead of the McKinsey Health Institute for a second. Um, you published a report, it was last year now, on... Um, the impact of toxic behavior in the workplace. Now, that's a very loaded word. And I'm aware that that word toxic is very loaded. And, and I probably would reiterate the fact that most people managers have got positive intentions and, and should things turn to toxic behaviors, it does tend to be inadvertent. But it would be great if you could tell me a little bit more about that report and about the impact of those toxic behaviors in the workplace. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So indeed, um, as one of the co-leaders at the McKinsey Health Institute, I look after employee health and well-being. And, uh, and the report that we brought out last year um, was around April. Uh, that was a report that uh, was based on a survey that went to 15 countries. Wow. And the 15 countries, uh, in those 15 countries, we surveyed um, uh, HR leaders, but also employees. So we looked at the employee experience. And this year we will go out to 28 countries. So we will continue that research. 
Uh, and we were very surprised. Um, now, yeah, first of all, we, we saw that uh, one out of four indicates uh, to experience uh, burnout symptoms. One out of three experience to feel the stress. Um, but one of the key drivers of burnout symptoms was this toxic workplace behavior. And what really surprised us that one out of four indicates to experience that. Wow. Which is very high. And, and I, I agree with you. It's, it's a hypothesis that we have is that, you know, um, not everybody goes to, goes to work to, to show toxic workplace behavior or be a bad person. But we also think, you know, there may be a group of people that have bad intent and show bad behavior. But the, the majority, I would expect, um, go with great intent. And sometimes uh, there's um, bad behavior. And at the same time, I want to emphasize... Um, a lot of the opportunity at team level on this topic sits within the dynamic between people. Mm. So even if the intent is positive and the behavior is maybe not even that bad, it may also be the context of the receiving end that uh, that then uh, uh, makes it uh, a bad experience. Uh, it's a misunderstanding between people. So deliberate calm, I would say, is important for team leaders, but also for team members. I would yes. say it's for everybody uh, relevant. I'm going to turn to your other book because I think it, it's quite relevant um, at this stage, and, and that's authentic confidence. Yeah. Um, and I think this goes back to the point that you've made in that I think we both believe that, that people managers generally are trying to do their best, but they're facing many challenges. And there's a challenge you talk about in here, which really resonates with me, um, and I'm sure it will resonate with many people managers. Um, and you say that a key characteristic of senior leaders is that they are plagued by self-doubt and self-criticism and tend to demand too much of themselves. Now, I am definitely plagued by self-doubt and self-criticism. Um, my um, inner critic is quite loud. Um, Ariana Huffington, who is one of my heroines, uh, she has described our inner critics as our obnoxious roommate living in our heads. And I have to say, my roommate is particularly obnoxious. She talks to me in a way that I would never dream of talking to somebody else. But what's really interesting is I know I'm not alone. So I've chatted to colleagues about this. I've chatted to friends about this. And I think that can lead that inner self-critic to lower self-confidence, which of course might lead to some of the behaviours that you've been describing. Um, and what's interesting about your book, Authentic Confidence, is that you actually give tips on how to become a more confident person and a more confident leader. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um... And, uh, and yes, we saw it also in our exploratory research. This is, uh, you're definitely not alone. Um, <laughs> for well, one, not for good, one, actually. We're 100% on the table <laughs> already, but uh, the research uh, uh, that we did showed, um, uh, in, in, on average, for, for the sample that we had, one out of two uh, actually think they can perform better at work if they were less worried about making mistakes. Um, and also a large part, 40% of uh, the group uh, worries a couple of hours a day. But then if you look at uh, uh, younger professionals, um, the number goes up, the numbers go up. And, and sometimes it's also unconsciously, right? Some, some behavior, it's th that's all about the awareness that we spoke about. Sometimes behavior comes from insecurity, but we're not even aware. Um, confidence, um, 
what can I say about that? It's it's very important for our um, performance, but we emphasize in our book that we are talking about authentic confidence because um, it is not so much about um, shutting down the inner critic per se, mm. but it is about actually giving him or her a place and not uh, the power that it uh, sometimes wants to have. And it is also about being okay with being insecure. So I don't know all the answers. I'm, you know, I may still have this insight right now that I think I hope Sarah's not going to ask me a difficult question because maybe I don't know the answer. And then, oh, so will I scratch the theory of relativity then? (laughs) (laughs) Let's do that. Let's skip it. (laughs) And then, how do I deal with this, right? Uh, And and then it's about being comfortable by. You know, in the, being who you are, yeah. I don't know the answers to everything. And therefore we have you here. You can give the answers to my blind spots. And this is also where we're going with with the team uh, teamwork in the new world of work where we do not have, we have uh, experts coming together, but leaders do not know all the answers. In the old world, leaders always uh, had all the answers because uh, they grew up within the firm, within an organization and they had seen it all. It's not possible anymore. But authentic confidence is being okay with the, with not being okay. Um, and that is a first step already to calming yourself down. And um, it's not about shutting out that inner critic. If you want to do that, it actually gets worse. Interesting. You cannot... Um, and I always, when I do a workshop with people... Um, some, sometimes people say, you know, I have this inner voice. I had my inner voice is that I'm not good enough. People don't want to have that inner voice, so they want to cut that thought out. And uh, and and I use this uh, this funny intervention that's based on research uh, where I said, okay, can anybody? Um, I'm now we're going to do a test for the next 30 seconds. No, we're not going to think about a white polar bear. And then if you think about a white polar bear, you stand up now. In 10 seconds, everybody stands up and so on. There are always a few that sit <laughs> that sits very sternly still on the chair. And I said, you know, then they say they distracted themselves. They didn't think about something. And some of them then say, I think about a red car. And therefore, I didn't think about a white polar bear. And what happens, and that is research, relational frame theory explains that as well. We cannot not think th- thoughts. Five seconds later, you think about a white polar bear in a red car. Because we start making connections. And the more we do not want to think about something, we make new connections about the same thing. And so more opportunity for this thought to come up. And so the trick is actually, that's what acceptance and commitment uh, theory uh, teaches us, which is the basis of that book, is that you distance yourself from your thoughts, the techniques in there, and that you also allow it to be with you. So I'm sitting here in this interview with you, with uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, whatever is going on in my brain, <laughs> that's fine. It's not always fun, though, but it's okay. I think that is wonderful advice. Um, and it's so true. If we over-fixate on what not to think, as you say, don't think about white polar bears. And, of course, we, we think about white polar bears. So it, hugely, hugely interesting. And you mentioned an intervention that you do with your team. Of course, you're a highly accomplished and experienced business leader. Can you tell me what else you do to support your team and their well-being? Oh, gosh, um, you give me big shoes there. <laughs> I don't know if I feel uh, like what you, how you just described me. So what I try to do with the, with the teams that I work, well, 
sometimes it's it's not even uh, on purpose, but I try to role model uh, vulnerability. I try to uh, have open conversations and I try to, what's very important, create a, an environment where people um, can be who they are uh, and can share what they, uh, what they want to share, have time for each other. And actually we don't have a lot of time these days because yeah. it's rushing. It's always, uh, um, there's a lot going on. And I think uh, also when we talk about mental health and well-being, uh, somebody told me recently that I I wasn't aware, but I I tend to say the magic of this topic happens at the team level, mm. and a lot of the magic does happen at the team level. Yes, you can create a, an environment at work, of course, with the right help and support when you need it, and um, a culture where people feel safe and. Uh, where we reduce stigma around mental health and well-being, but the solution of the challenges uh, where it really needs to happen is at the team level, mm. um, where you need to create uh, flexibility for people to find help or to get they, to get them help. And it doesn't need to be a big thing. It can be uh, something like, uh, you know, my doctor's appointment has moved. Uh, I now need to move to another day and can we help each other out. If we are not flexible there, that causes a lot of stress down the line and so on, right? And that, that is where it already starts. Um, but I think the most important thing is um, I really, um, I, I, I wish we could be more compassionate. Mm-hmm. You know, I like kindness. I like, yes, we need to make sure we perform, but also in a human way. That's yeah. also, everybody does their best. And, and so that's a very important element um, for how I collaborate with people. I, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, you said so much in that, that that really resonates with me. Um, you talked about the importance actually as a leader of, of showing vulnerability. And you talked about allowing people to bring their true selves to work. And I feel for so long, people felt that they needed to put a mask up and they needed yeah. to be something different. Um, and I know if I'm being honest about myself, I you know, shared with you earlier that I suffered from quite debilitating panic attacks. I hid that. I hid that in my closet and I wasn't telling anyone lest that impact my career. I actually only started talking about it probably in the past 12 to 18 months. Um, and I talk about it to sort of support others who may have, who may be going through that now. Um, But I'm going to sort of circle right back to the beginning of this discussion because I started by asking you the scientific way on a scale of one to 10, you know, how would you rate your life satisfaction nowadays? And and you said eight. So you're in a in a really great place. That's above average. Um, have you always been at an eight? Or, you know, what's what has been your journey to get to this place? Yeah, and um, and I want to acknowledge you uh, also to say thank you for sharing your story because that's also where we uh, bonded yeah. uh, as well. <laughs> uh, and it's so powerful. So thank you for doing that. So no, definitely, I... Um, I haven't always been an eight. And, and by the way, I'm not every day an eight today. Uh, this uh, goes uh, up and down. But uh, I was really not in a, in a great space about, what was it, seven, eight years ago? Okay. Where I went through, uh, I called it, la- I have called it later a confidence crisis. Okay. Tell um, me more about that. Yeah. And um, that was, I, I did a TED talk about it as well. Um um, because I started to talk about it uh, at some point. But there was a, a phase where, for me, I changed. There was a lot of change happening in my life. And um, and I also changed uh, career. I changed role. And, uh, 
and 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 there was this increase. I mean, I always had low grade anxiety my whole life. I just have uh, also um, that um, personality. But I managed it well up till to that point by just working harder and doing my best and trying to to you know not make mistakes and showing that uh, at least so you manage it by being a perfectionist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just by being not being well, showing acting as as you know, being a perfectionist, trying to do the best thing. It's and hide uh, mistakes, of course. Being it's an expert mindset. I like that as well, and I want to do a good job, and I want to be the good girl. Uh, maybe I don't know what it you know what it was, but I want to be um, uh, do well. And I definitely in that phase in my life, I didn't want people to regret that they hired me. I thought, okay. I want to make sure that they are. <laughs> and isn't that such an awful thing to oh, think? Yeah. That, that's the obnoxious roommate living in your head. Oh, I have multiple. Telling you that. And that one yeah. was one, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so I uh, coped with that feeling uh, and that um, mindset by just working harder and harder. And I didn't... Uh, share it I also didn't sleep I didn't take sleep enough I didn't uh, I didn't know actually that uh, sleep is so important I learned that later <laughs> and then yeah no surprise uh, I was actually getting panic attacks secret panic attacks but also I would freeze in meetings and what was very frustrating is that it it worked the other way I mean um, even simple questions I couldn't have answers to and so the stress was completely shutting down my brain basically and and then uh, and that was a phase that I went through and I decided at some point um, that I wanted to do something. There was very, it was a very strong thing that came from the inside mm. that I had to do something about this. This was going to be something I wanted to work at and I wanted to do it in the context where I was. Yeah. I didn't want to walk away from it. And that's how I went on my journey studying this topic and writing about it and so on. Yeah. So you, I mean, and first of all, thank you for sharing because that that is so personal and, and, and we have met before, so we have yeah. shared our stories personally, but, um, you know, hopefully it can be helpful to share them with, with others in this way. Um, I would recommend your TED Talk. I think it was really, really interesting, but, you know, you describe a lot of tendencies that we all fall into the trap of. I'm stressed, I'm feeling like I'm not good enough. So what's the answer? I'll work harder, I'll get less sleep, everything I do will be perfect. And and that sort of seems to be the perfect storm um, where actually what we need to do is step back. We need to make sure we're looking after ourselves. And we know this, we all know this, that we need to eat better, we need to get out and get fresh air, we need to sleep more. And at the exact point when we know that's what we need, we tell ourselves, but I don't have time. I don't have time, yeah. so I'm going to work all these extra hours. And it sounds like that's what happened to you, Jackie. Is that fair? Yeah. Oh, Sarah, I can even tell you a, f- a funny example now. I, you think, gosh, it's, you can cry about it <laughs> or you can laugh about it. it. It went so far that I actually even, the silly thing is that my nail polish had to match my clothes. And so... <laughs> at two o'clock yeah I love it. it's beautiful <laughs> but literally I remember a, a, a night where I would come home very late and the next day I had an important na- uh, meeting and I would yeah. change my nail and my nails were not looking well and I would at one o'clock still do my nails right I mean and, and nobody would notice it's only no. us we have a chip in our nail it's only us yeah. that notices so yeah. what was your turning point because you're describing behaviors that so many people will relate to what was the turning point was it when you started researching this when you started studying this where was that moment in time 
the turning point for uh, deciding I want to do something about it was uh, was was very vividly uh, during a moment actually that it was at my at at work where it happened again. I thought if I continue this, then you know it's 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 not I cannot fulfill my own potential. I very clearly uh, felt that, and I thought. If I act as if it's not there, then I'm going to fail and it gets worse. If I walk away, then I've not learned something. And so now I'm going to do something about it. And a couple of things that I did uh, was uh, starting to talk about it, um, which, by the way, if I may take a detour, I'm not saying everybody should talk about it. Yeah, that's fair. Right? Because talk what you're comfortable with. Stigma about. is yeah. real. Stigma is real. And there's a lot of research there. But for me, I was ready for any consequences because I thought, okay, if this is going to be my purpose... These lemons are thrown at me. Let's see how I can make lemonade out of this. And if anything, I at least learn from it myself. So, but, or and, that has happened. I learned from it myself. And through that, I also wanted to give back. But when I started to talk about it, uh, there were people who also uh, commented that. And I I say that also in my TED talk, you know, there's a group of people uh, that said, this is amazing. Uh, I also feel this and I'm glad that somebody's talking about it. So we can actually uh, bring this uh, destigmatized topic around this. Um, and this was, you know, way before the pandemic. So it was, it's, we talk a bit more about these things right now. But it was also a group of people that said, are you not afraid that this will harm your career? Mm-hmm. And yes, I had thought about that, but I couldn't give anything about it anymore. I really thought, okay, whatever it is, I'm ready uh, to face it. Uh, and that, that's the inner courage that I then mm-hmm. get. It, 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 it became a purpose. Um, but also slowly but surely I started to learn I was not alone because I yeah. thought I was alone and I was, uh, it's a weakness and I felt ashamed as well of it. And then I realized I'm not alone. And then I thought, okay, if it's not a weakness, what is actually the science behind it? Apart from the behavioral and the psychological science, I said, I wanted to know, I want to know what's happening in the brain mm-hmm. and the body. And that's how I started to study the neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And I got another, uh, as you know, I, I went back to university um, and I got a degree in effective neuroscience. And that's where I actually, I was already on that journey, being kinder to myself uh, and, and a bit, I'm a big fan of self-compassion. I followed a workshop with Kristen Neff as well. It was a huge unlock for me. But when I actually started to learn about the biology and the neuroscience behind it, that really all put it together. I thought, okay, what are we doing to ourselves? Yeah. <laughs> right? It's, I mean, and why do we stigmatize this? And why do we think it's a weakness? There yeah. is actually a very clear explanation. And that has helped me uh, as well, Sarah, to explain this content for boardrooms Mm. that actually are not ready yet for the soft stuff. They first need to actually feel comfortable that there is science. Yes. And then they can leave that aside and be open for talking about the softer stuff because they feel safe. Sometimes it's a safer way, right, to open up your brain for it. And and this is actually, it brings me back to, because both books you go in at different levels into the science. So yeah. there's, there's not time to go into that now. But if you are interested listening in, in the science, in neuroscience, there is a lot in these books. And obviously there, 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 there's many others as well. Um, but that sort of brings us to, I, I like to finish with a rapid fire round. Um, and like a quiz show, like a quiz show host. Um, and uh, actually, I think it, it, this brings me nicely to the first question. So the first question is, when you're having a challenging day or a challenging week, 
what rituals do you put in place to support your own well-being? Yeah, I have a couple of non-negotiables that I think about. No matter what, if it rains or not, and if I feel bad or not, um, I go out for a walk. Great. Walking is my, um, my, my best habit, basically. Uh, it's my savior. Um, and so I find time to walk, no matter what. What's the best job that you've ever worked in thinking about the perspective of your well-being? I think I'm currently uh, in it. I've been lucky to be to have been in many jobs. But the thing is, that why I'm hesitating is that I work a lot and I work hard. Yet, because of its purpose, it's the best job for health and well-being. So purpose, that's really interesting. The thing that drives your well-being, well, there's obviously many things, but you know, in a work situation is you're looking to work in a role that gives you a sense of purpose. Absolutely. And the people that I work and with. So one, one of the things I would say to everybody, find your purpose and work with the people you really like and the people you feel you can be at your best. And and I've had, the, I've been lucky to have many of those jobs through my life, but currently I also want to confirm I am in one. So, uh, and then you can have a lot. Your best job uh, is all about a job with purpose, with people. Um, Aristotle uh, believed that the ultimate goal of life, of course, was was purpose or eudaimonic well-being or eudaimonic happiness, as as Aristotle would have said. Um, would that then mean that your 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 least enjoyable job, from a well-being perspective, might be something where you lacked purpose? Yes. So it it, it has been a job where I rationally chose. Uh, a direction and rationally chose for a job that I thought was uh, something that was popular and it was the right job to do because my dad did something in the same space um, but I was not where my heart was yeah. and so yes absolutely for me it is and, and I have had that experience yeah well Jackie it has been such a pleasure you have provided so many actionable tips that we can all take to improve our own well-being but also to improve the well-being of our colleagues because we're all working with many people and, and lead multifaceted lives so a huge thank you for coming on the Working on Wellbeing podcast. Thank you Sarah for asking these great questions <laughs> that's where the magic came from so well the magic came from your honor. books. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you.